Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. Jordan, what is happening? What's up, Sam? How you doing? Not much, man. I just had an incredible interview. Mr. Tarek Alhamdouni, the SVP of Digital Marketing at RCA. And uh, I know we tend to hype up all our interviews, but this one deserves a little bit of extra hype because this is that hot fire. Um, <laughs> Tarek is an incredible human being. Uh, like I said, he's the SVP of Digital Marketing at RCA. Um, RCA has an incredible roster of different artists. I mean, uh, even in this episode alone, we talk about how he rolled out This Is America with Childish Gambino. Um, his team has also worked on Khalid's uh, Free Spirit release, Pink. Um, also one of my favorite producers that I think is so incredible. And even though he's pretty big, is still really underrated. Kay Trinata, incredible artist on RCA. Um, I know, Jordan, you had some experience working with RCA with Goldlink and, and helping crew get to the, the place it did. So I think really excited about this episode in particular, because in, in, in the episode with Tarek, we dive into a couple of very tactical topics as it pertains to digital marketing. I think, one, tracking performance and return on investment. I know it can be really challenging to do so. So really understanding his framework as to how he's testing different tactics and seeing the returns was valuable. Uh, I think he also did a really good job at level setting the, the foundation of the objective of a marketing team and digital marketing team. And that's really building a, an emotional connection between fans and the musician's art and diving into how a lot of the identity of consumers is actually tied to the artists that they support. They also speak about the importance of content and also tactics to get in front of your target audience. What stood out to you in this episode, Jordan? Um, I think something that we cover that a lot of people value that we obviously should or honestly should do more is how people got their foot in the door. Um, I think kind of going into his origin story and how he ended up at a company like RCA um, will be really valuable for people wanting to get into the music industry. I also think we talk about longevity. Um, so how to kind of stay there. He's been there for almost a decade. So how to really excel at that level for as long as he has. Um, and then other than that, one thing I was really impressed with was we ended up speaking about uh, what to think about before you start a digital marketing campaign. And I think, I think you know, when we cover digital marketing or when people discuss digital marketing, it's, it's obviously a, when, you, when you've done the campaign, do these things. But what about before when you even start the campaign, what should you be thinking about? And I'm really glad we got into that. Um, and obviously, talking about This Is America, that was one of the biggest songs of the year when it came out in 2018 and kind of get into his head and, and to figure out, you know, how that release ended up being as big as it was, I think was invaluable so i'm really excited for people to hear that yeah well without any further ado very excited to get right into this one mr tarak ahamduni tarak how you doing man welcome to the show i'm good thanks uh thanks for having me excited to, to be chatting with you yeah man very excited to have you on um with that said for starters i know we were just talking a little bit before the show started but it, it seemed like you came to new york about 10 years ago and uh similar timing as to when you started working at rca you talk a little bit about what led you to join RCA and how you were really able to kind of get your foot in the door? Yeah, for sure. Um, love telling this story because I, I think it's one that um, can be mimicked um, by a lot of different um, kind of young industry interested folks. Um, 
And, but at the same time, it's one where I got very lucky as well. So, you know, I think the one thing that I tell everybody who's joining the industry is that it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of luck. Um, and you're, you're probably not going to make it as far as you want to without having a little bit of both and understanding that luck plays a role in your development and your career development is really important in terms of remaining, um, humble and also looking for opportunities to kind of coach up that next generation and kind of pay your good luck forward. Um, but for me personally, um, you know, I was a music fan from, from a young age, I started playing guitar, like 12, 13, um, courtesy of, uh, my older brother starting to pick up a guitar, you know? Um, the normal kind of sibling uh, kind of uh, transition from from older to younger. But um, as I got more and more involved in music, I realized that that's something I wanted to do from a career perspective. Um, and so I started looking into ways to do that. My, my family's always been fairly academically focused. Uh, my dad's a college professor. My mom was an engineer. And so from a very early age, college was, was very much on the table in terms of, you know, um, the direction that I was pointed in. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's a tremendous amount of freedom in terms of like, you know, follow your passion, follow, follow what, um, you know, where your interests lie, et cetera. Um, and that led me to uh, Northeastern University, um, where they have a music industry program. Um, and and one, of the, one of the few in the country, although plenty of, have popped up um, over the past few years. Um, but what I loved about that program was it was a heavy mix of both the business and the music side of things. And so, you know, from, from day one of, of starting my career, I understood publishing, I understood mechanical royalties, I understood copyright, you know, all those kind of minutiae, all that minutiae that from a marketing perspective, maybe not top of mind for a lot of people. Um, but in terms of understanding how to navigate the industry and how to collaborate with your peers, the more you understand about all the little nuances about our business, um, the better it is. And so when I'm looking to hire people, a lot of times, um, you know, if I see somebody that's gone through one of those college industry programs, um, more often than not, it's at least worth a conversation with them. I can't say that they're, you know, the only people that we hire. That's definitely not the case. Um, but, you know, knowing that they have some of that key knowledge is something that I find really, really valuable. Um, as part of going to Northeastern, uh, I did three internships. Um, my last internship was with J Records at the time um, in New York. So I did a six-month program with them um, and essentially uh, started learning digital marketing. At the time, um, you know, it was like dating myself, but like, you know, MySpace was the thing at the time, you know? And so <clears throat> being a, a young person who had experimented with HTML on my own and kind of self-taught a bunch of stuff, um, that allowed me to step in and, and provide value from a very early standpoint. Um, you know, HTML was new to a lot of the industry. Um, and so even just understanding how to update a background on MySpace page, page was like something that solved the problem for people. So, um, you know, I think a lot of times you hear the advice of like, if you're looking for a job, find a way to make yourself invaluable. Um, I think, you know, that, that would be an exaggeration in terms of like kind of how my career started with, with RCA specifically, but Jay was eventually acquired by RCA records or merged with RCA records. And that was the real, um, kind of bridge for me to, to make it into that world. Um, my boss at the time had, or my boss as a, as an intern headed up the digital marketing team at Jay records. When the merger happened, she took over the RCA and Jay records, um, department, um, around that time, the department also grew. She got uh, to promote her um, admin and I got an opportunity to step in as an admin. Um, and then, yeah, once I got a chance to, to pop down in that seat, I just took every opportunity in front of me to, to be vocal, um, to be humble and learn about what other people, you know, brought to the table. Um, but to never sit in a meeting and just be quiet, you know, never to just be a body in a chair. I think that's something that, um, that I really push my team to currently um, to always keep in mind. And, you know, these days with digital being on the forefront of pretty much everything, um, even if they wanted to be quiet, they, they, they wouldn't be able to, they're going to get called out for it. Um, but that's largely like how I got to RCA from there. It was just a matter of, you know, grinding it out um, and, and climbing, um, you know, I was going to say climbing the corporate ladder. 
Um, I think that's kind of like a silly idiom, especially uh, for our industry, because a ladder can only go, usually only goes up and down. Um, I like to think of it more like climbing a mountain, because at the end of the day, if there's a boulder in your way, you take another path. And um, as a result of that, you know, like that mentality, I've taken a bunch of different paths throughout um, my career at, um, at RCA, at Sony, that have all been kind of centered within digital. Um, but, you know, it started with supporting projects, followed by running our CRM business, um, which evolved into managing our D2C business. Um, after that, I kind of moved back towards uh, running point on projects. Um, and I did that until there was an opportunity um, to, to run point on the department, um, kind of made my pitch, explained kind of, you know, what my history was. And, and obviously I'd made, um, you know, a lot of friends within the company by that point. So people knew what to expect from me, um, got into the seat and then just, you know, not, not giving it up without a fight. Right. That kind of leads me to my next question, which is what do you think is important in having longevity as an employee at a company like RCA? I mean, you kind of say that you, uh, you took advantage of things when you could, you took, took, you know, took advantage of opportunities, but, um, what, what, what lessons do you think you learned in particular about just sustaining that level of excellence, I guess, over the course of a decade? Sure. For me, um, man, patience is a big part of it. Um, I can't say that I, I, I had a whole lot of that, um, throughout my career. I think, you know, I spent a lot of my early career being indignant and just fighting and wanting to, you know, understand more, know more, be involved in more conversations, et cetera. Um, and I think that ambition is a good thing, but I wouldn't necessarily say that blind ambition is a, is a good way to go about it. Um, I think longevity really comes down to um, being able to weather the storms of, of, a, of an individual project while continuing to stay motivated, um, creative, and collaborative. Um, our industry is filled with, um, you know, tremendous opportunities and also tremendous hurdles and frustrations. You know, at the end of the day, you're collaborating with another human being in the hopes of bringing their artistic vision to the masses, you know, and, and those two things are always going to ebb and flow in terms of like, okay, do we need to reach the, the, the biggest audience humanly possible? Or do we need to make a statement from our artistic perspective to really define who the artist is? And the frustrations that can come up in terms of getting on the same page can really demotivate people and kind of push them away. Um, but I think if you're patient and you listen to what, you know, everybody has to say, and you understand that like, you know, this industry has so many opportunities for success that like, if you don't maximize the one that you know you could have, there's always going to be another opportunity around the corner. You know, so save that energy uh, that, that maybe you would direct internally to say, well, like, oh, he didn't do her, his job or she didn't do their job. And, 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 um, and, and like that energy that you take to, to finger point or to, to, to just be frustrated pulls away from the energy that you need to actually be able to, to accomplish your job. Um, frustration can be a good motivator for people that it was for me. I would just grind my teeth and stay up until 2 a.m. to get my stuff done. Um, but I don't think that's the healthiest way to go about it. I think the healthiest way to go about it is to build relationships um, with the people around you, learn from them, collaborate with them, um, you know, help to help them to learn from you and discover what you're seeing that maybe they haven't been seeing. Um, don't assume that you know everything, but at the same time, don't for a second discount um, what you do know. And I think um, the, the only other thing I can say is like failure, at least for me and in a lot of places, uh, if you give people a, a safe environment to experiment and to fail, um, it can be the greatest kind of educator on the planet. You know, if I know that I've done something wrong uh, or something that I'm ineffective in a particular campaign that I really wanted to work um, and, it, and it didn't because of an obvious error on my side of things, I'm not going to make that error again. You know, like that's going to stick with me for a very long period of time. 
but it's only going to stick with me as a motivator. If you, if you have that in your mind and you start walking scared, you start thinking scared, et cetera, at a certain point, you've just opted out of participating in the company whatsoever. So, you know, don't be afraid to be wrong, um, but be humble enough to recognize when you're wrong and then, you know, make the progress towards, um, you know, if it's a mistake, not making that mistake again, or if it's a learning, applying that to everything you're doing so that you can just be better than, you know, you were the day before. A thousand percent. No, it's a fun journey, I'm sure. And I think even now at the stage you're at, I'm sure you continue to grow and learn a lot. So that's exciting. In that vein too, I mean, as, as you've adapted and grown within the organization, what, uh, how does the marketing department, what does it look like from like a, a staffing and resourcing standpoint? I know there's lots of different moving pieces, lots of different artists. So how are you going about structuring teams to support your objectives? Yeah, I can tell you that there's a lot of discussion behind that now. I think, you know, when you look at the industry overall, um, you will see that um, there's a sea change happening, right? Like our business has changed entirely. You know, five years ago, um, we're focusing on downloads. That's a very different conversation with consumers than it is focusing on streams. Um, and the main difference is um, our jobs got a lot easier in terms of a conversion perspective, right? Getting somebody to click play is a lot easier for somebody to open up their wallet, enter in their credit card information and click buy. But I used to be able to get 100,000 people to click buy and feel really good about it. If I get 100,000 people to click play, pretty good. But I need them to do that every single day, every day of the week for the rest of the year to be able to make up the difference between what that front end funding was. And like, granted, the, the, new, the new model is great because it has a tail. Like it's long, you know, you're monetizing that consumption, not just, you know, for the first week that you put the album out or when somebody buys it, um, but over a long course of time. And so the reason I say that before getting into the resource side of things and the staffing side of things is because... Um, I think you can expect every single label out there to change um, in a dramatic fashion over the next five years. And I think those changes are going to be putting more resources into, into the marketing, into the digital side of things, into the, um, into the data side of things, um, and obviously already into the A&R side of things. You look at the number of artists that are being signed these days, it's just through the roof compared to where we were five, six, seven years ago. And obviously the amount of uh, revenue coming in plays a big role in that and how streaming has been able to, to allow us to invest a lot more um, in signing artists, in developing artists, and putting their content out. Um, in terms of how we're, we're specifically staffed, I think our, our, our marketing team's in the, the 20 to 25 range. I, I wouldn't necessarily take that as gospel. Um, they sit alongside our team on the digital marketing side of things that obviously I uh, have memorized a little bit better. We're, we're about 13 people, um, and we are split amongst um, project leads who are really responsible for um, answering the question, what are we doing? You know, what's the artist doing that's going to make a difference? Um, I, I like to think of us as focusing on audience and affinity. If you think about how we make money today and how we make more money tomorrow, we have two options. We can either increase the number of people who are clicking that play button, or we can get those people who are clicking that play button to click it more often, right? In a perfect world, you're doing both at the exact same time. And what we found is the best way to reach people online is through content. You know, it's not, not particularly surprising. Um, if you think about where the majority of label investment has gone since the 80s, um, huge, huge costs have been associated with music videos. That's, that's, that's bread and butter content for us. Um, and it doesn't have to be a big music video shoot for it to make a huge difference. Um, it really comes down to the idea, the execution, the audience, um, and the partnership that you can develop with your team. So um, I expect our team to start moving um, towards uh, the number that the marketing team has at the same time as they can to continue to bolster their staff. We collaborate a lot with our sales team. Um, we see platforms like Spotify, Apple, YouTube, et cetera, as having, um, you know, heavy, heavy portions of both um, the, the sales editorial push and the marketing push. Because at the end of the day, you know, you could be on every single playlist on Spotify and there's going to be a cap to how many streams you're going to get. 
Whereas if you have, uh, there's, whereas there's no real cap to how many fans you can create. And if you're creating millions and millions of fans, um, you know, next thing you know, it's, it's those million and millions of fans are going to be cl clicking play, not just on your current content, but hopefully and everything you're doing going forward. We're, we're, our jobs have become much more core to what I, what I envisioned our jobs being when I stepped into this, which is like, our main job is to make a fan, is to make somebody fall in love with a song, to, to have an emotional connection with another human being. And I think, um, I'm sorry, I said another human being, I should say, with, with another human being's art. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, from a staffing perspective, I expect, you know, my, my ambition is to double our team as quickly as possible, um, is to lean a lot more into the data side of things um, and to really take our learnings, mash them up with our creativity um, and get a lot more experimentation out there at the same time as, you know, making sure that we're hammering home all the best practices that we know um, need to happen for every project. Yeah, no, and appreciate going into depth there and tons of uh, follow on questions every sentence. <laughs> no, but I mean, the things that jump out to, I mean, I, I love the kind of the, uh, the, the foundational level of really asking the question of, of creating fandom and creating fans that is the foundation and then uh, applying kind of a, a data meets creative approach grounded in experimentation is ultimately how you're going to be able to really methodically make progress and, and double down on what you can empirically identify what's actually working. Um, so in that vein, like, how do you track success from a marketing perspective for your artists? Like, and I know there's lots of variables, so you are uh, variables, KPIs. I mean, if you could dive into a couple, that'd be very helpful. Sure. I mean, the most obvious one is streams. Um, right. that's where the majority of our revenue comes from these days. Um, it's also where we have the longest tail. So, uh, monitoring streaming growth is really important for us. Um, but again, to your point, it really depends on kind of what the, what the goal of the campaign is. If we're working on an established artist. Um, you know, who has millions of fans on Instagram and followers or monthly listeners on Spotify, Apple, et cetera. Um, you know, that, um, that space, I think, is one where we can be really like, um, I guess, uh, ambitious, uh, for lack of a, of a better term. Like, I think that there's a lot for us to learn per project. But when you're starting from the top, you can't expect to grow day two, right? Like, if you already have a tremendous fan base, um, and people know you within the market, especially if there's major media saturation, you can generally expect your first week to be your biggest week of streams. Possibly um, your, your, the album release week as well. That's another time that you're going to get a huge spike in streams. Um, and so a big part of our first week is, is maximizing those streams, um, those first week streams. Because the higher you start, you know, the, low, the longer it's going to take to decay, hopefully, um, assuming that the content is, is received fairly well. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, and, and really seeing kind of like how, uh, an artist streams compared to both, you know, records that we know are working in the market from competitors and from our own label. Um, and then additionally, what's worked for that artist in the past. If we have an artist whose last track did 5 million first week, um, best case scenario, we want to be doing more than 5 million first week the next time we put a song out, right? That's just progress in terms of, um, audience development and things along those lines. Um, it's, it's a little bit tough to read the tea leaves perfectly. Um, because at the same time, you can create fans of, of a celebrity that aren't necessarily fans of their music. And so, you know, we do look at social numbers and we do look at social growth as a way to measure kind of like how we're developing an audience. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, one of the things that we've really, really uh, doubled, if not tripled down on, is, is being able to understand the audience and, and really which audiences can help us drive uh, an artist's career. Um, one of the one of the major sea changes that we've had um, has been a transition from um, basically taking the passion from young folks, mixing it with the money from older folks, 
to create a viable business for an artist, right? So when you're young, you have all the time and energy in the world to discover music, to, um, to talk about music with your friends, to watch music videos, to create playlists, to burn CDs. That, that doesn't happen anymore. But back in the day, burn CDs, you know? Um, so, or make tapes or whatever it was. Um, you know, I think that like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a little bit of a funny aside, but I do think that like, as you look at that, that, that transition, um, there, are, there are key learnings that are starting to emerge in terms of like us really needing to make sure that we're engaging that youngest audience in a meaningful way. Um, because at the end of the day, especially during COVID where, where touring is, is, has pretty much, you know, become non-existent um, and where merch sales have been um, decoupled from album bundles, um, you know, you're now in a place where essentially it's really hard to monetize your artist's career using only that larger, um, th that older fan base. Because that older fan base, you're competing with the fact that they probably have kids, they probably have jobs. Um, I shouldn't say probably. They possibly have kids, possibly have jobs. Um, they are, they are you know, um, engaging in a thousand different things that are happening. They're worrying about putting food on the table, um, et cetera. And so they don't necessarily, they're not thinking, you know, what's the new music that came out today. And a lot of times when they go and think about the music that they love, they return to the stuff that they know, because at that point in their lives, they're probably searching for more comfort, um, for more nostalgia than they are necessarily the new for the, for the experimentation. And look, I'm talking in very general senses and, 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 and there are plenty of, of older music fans that stream like crazy. I, I know I'm, I'm one of them. I definitely fall into that category. Um, but I do think at the same time, we see the volume coming from that youngest generation. And so um, we really need to maximize uh, the engagement coming from that 13 to 17 and 18 to 24 demos so that by the time those fans become, um, you know, 25 to, to 34, et cetera, um, we make it to a place where they can actually... Um, re-engage via touring, merch sales, et cetera. Um, right. But yeah, it's hard to have both at the same time these days. For sure. Um, sorry, I know yeah. that's like fairly, fairly far off from answering uh, the question. I like it. I like it. Well, to double down on one of the points, I mean, I, I think there's, you peeled, apart, you peeled it apart into lots of uh, valuable layers. I think one question, and I know Jordan has some other questions too about this, but um, when it comes to just, the, the tracking and KPI side, I know you're kind of mentioning into like different demographics, not getting too focused on social growth to the point where you're optimizing for the wrong thing. Cause there is a disconnect just between fans of celebrity and fans of art and music. Um, I know like if you look at digital marketing in some other industries, you can get very, you, you can, model attribution a lot better. You can have like Google UTM links and look at lead sources into a website. Um, on Spotify, you send traffic into a black box. I mean, you can see the, the statistics of people that are engaging, but for all the traffic you're driving externally, it's, it's very hard to um, show direct attribution. So when it comes to driving streams, how have you gone about, I mean, what are the other like layers of kind of KPIs or how are you going to optimize your campaigns towards what will actually drive the most streams? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, it, and it goes back to the audience because every audience is going to be looking for something different from, the, from, the, from what's galvanized them as an audience. You know, usually the artist mm -hmm. is not a, it's not a song. Um, and so in terms of like, conversion has never been part of what we've been able to see. You know, like we're not the ticket sellers. We're not the music sellers. Uh, and we're not the streaming company. We've, we've tried to do those things in the past, but at the end of the day, um, the, the market has really solved for a lot of that. And so 
it's, it's almost like we never had the benefit of knowing what the conversion looked like in the first place to be able to really like um, get that level of information. And what I would say is actually rather than getting less information these days, we get way more information. And so we get much more like big data of like what everything is happening on a given platform, just not attributed to an individual. So I don't have that conversion, but what I do have is number of streams that are happening every day. And what I also have is the way that those streams are being generated. And so like, I know that if somebody is searching for a track and then pressing play, to me, that's way more valuable than somebody who is hearing a song in a playlist and they just don't skip it, right? Because they could have walked away from their computer or from their, their phone or whatever it was that they were listening to music. So when, when we talk about like driving streams specifically, you know, step one is building a relationship with the artist in a way that we can understand what they're doing from a conversion-based perspective. Um, best case scenario is you're integrating them into our CRM um, database and you know, we do that through a myriad of ways. Um, one of the main ways that we've done it is um, through collaborating around like very fun BuzzFeed, uh, BuzzFeed-esque quizzes um, that are that are um, kind of along the lines of like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, we put a, a, a Backstreet Boys album out um, fairly recently. And in typical fashion, we did a campaign that said like, okay, which Backstreet Boy are you? Um, pretty simple stuff, right? But all we did was have a system set up so that you could scan your library using the Spotify API. Um, and what that would do is match up your, your, your listening history with each of the individuals in Backstreet Boys listening history, and then spit out the Backstreet Boy that you, that you have the most overlap with, present you with a playlist, present you with social graphics that you can then share. And so like all of a sudden there's this reason for you to be talking about Backstreet Boys on your timeline, et cetera. And they're, they're, Granted, like we were engaging with a slightly older fan base, obviously based on you know how how much success they've had over the years. Um, but I think that that like that core engagement and that personalization of the content to yourself is something that humans try and do naturally. You know, they try and fit um, TV shows, music into their lives. I say this a lot. Like we are one of the few industries where people define who they are as people by our content. Like if you're having a and maybe maybe this is. It is just too, too much on my side of things. But if you're having a conversation with somebody that you've never met before, you're generally going to talk about books you've read, movies you like, shows you like, and music you like is a huge part of them. You know, you walk down the halls of a high school, at least when, when I was in high school and you looked in the lockers, like people had posters of their favorite artists in those lockers, you know? And they didn't do that because like they were getting some reward for doing that. They're doing that because they're saying, when you see me, I want you to think of this or vice versa. When you see this brand, I want you to think of me because I am as alternative as Marilyn Manson. Or I am as, you know, witty as the next artist on this, Father John Misty or whomever it is, you know, like people use our content to, to, to define who they are. And I think that as a result of that, like we need to give them reasons to do so and ways to do so. And I think that that's really where, where, um, where our goal to kind of increase streams um, comes from. And then in terms of the actual methodology that happens, it really depends on the artist. So it could be very Spotify heavy, but it could be XUS heavy, where we know that we need to get... Um, we need to grow from uh, from an international perspective because we have great saturation in the U.S. market, but we haven't caught up XUS. Um, that can take um, kind of like the the role of like um, it could be something as simple as working with other artists in other markets who are on the much smaller side of things that upload covers to YouTube. Cool, we have a huge artist breaking in the U.S. Um, and we're starting to see a little bit of bubbling in Germany. Let's go find a, a, a German creator um, that uploads covers of of U.S. songs in German onto his or her YouTube channel, um, and let's get them to cover our song. And in exchange, you know, we'll make sure the artist supports them and gets them the, 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 the attention that they deserve for collaborating with us. Um, and hopefully they can spiral, you know, more subscribers, et cetera, off for themselves as part of it. Um, but yeah, I think everything, every solution should hopefully be that nuance outside of the best practice stuff, which is, you know, 
make sure that your links have retargeting pixels, uh, make sure right. you have email sign up across your websites, those kinds of things. Right. Um, a little bit earlier, you mentioned life cycle, which is something that we haven't really discussed on the podcast much um, of a fan where you, you invest a lot into marketing right now because you want them in 10 years to come back and buy merchandise, um, which kind of begs the larger question of how do you, how do you judge, uh, I guess, a marketing campaign and how do you decide what time span to kind of stop uh, judging that campaign? So if you put in, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars or whatever the, the budget is right now for an artist, how do you judge what like what is the time span that you're paying attention to? Is it is it is it like two weeks after the album comes out or is it that 10 years when you get that merchandise 10 years later, you know? Yeah, great question. Um, for for us, it, it generally comes down to. I was going to say as long as it takes, but that's not true because there's a certain point you're going to jump <laughs> off, right? Um, right? I do think that like it, our, our, our industry thrives, like we love, I would love to say I know what songs are going to break. You know, like we know which uh, ones we have a really, really good feeling about. We know which artists um, we think have a really strong proposition, audience, um, and, and, and story to tell. Um, but at the end of the day, until we get the music into the market, it's really hard to judge whether, where it's going to go. Um, and so we use two things. We use history to define kind of like what we can expect to see in the future, right? That's like comparison thing that I was talking about in terms of what did you stream last time? What are you going to stream this mm -hmm. time? Um, mm -hmm. But then there's also the other side of that, which is really like being able to gauge the social conversation. What are people saying about the music? And then watching um, both the streams and the conversation over time. And, you know, as we're doing that, like we're constantly throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what sticks, grabbing onto it, pouring gasoline on it, doing it again. It's this constant mm -hmm. experimentation kind of repetition where like you're just constantly cycling through new ways to get music in front of people, learning from those and then trying to double, triple down on them. Um, and so there's no specific answer, but really the, the time that we, we tend to stop working on a particular project is either when um, it's apparent that there's no more growth left in it um, mm -hmm. and, and, and at that point, our, our strategy shifts to extending the tail as long as possible, uh -huh. because, which probably means less investment and more, um, more kind of like intelligent placement, um, and things along those lines or things that branch out of the, of the music side of things. Uh, I'm sorry, of the digital music side of things. Um, so award shows, things like that, right. We're going to use records that have stuck around for a long time to make sure our artists are performing on the Billboard Music Awards, the Grammys, et cetera. Um, when we see a track that's starting to decay faster than we expect, we start to employ different strategies, right? Because at that point, everything that we threw at the wall isn't sticking. And so that's, a, that's not a sign for us to give up. It's never a sign for us to give up when you just don't, when something doesn't work immediately. Um, but at the end of the day, we do have, um, you know, a lot of work on our plates. And so we have to optimize on where the opportunities are. And so at a certain point, you know, whether it's, it's week five or week 35, um, there's going to be a point where it's like, okay, what do we do next for the artist? And usually that's the question. It's not, let's stop working on this artist. It's like, okay, this, we've taken this as far as we think it can go. What have we learned? And what do we do to apply that to the next one? And that's a conversation right. like ongoing while you're evaluating your current situation. You're always trying to think of what comes next for the artist. And every now and then you're going to get lucky and you're going to trip into something viral, et cetera. And you're going to, you know, take it for a win and maximize and all that fun stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, hopefully you can be strategic enough that when you're launching a project after having some activity around an artist, not only are the algorithms warmed up with your DSPs and with your digital service providers and with your socials, um, right. but you also have an engaged audience that's easier to reach than they were um, prior to us creating that campaign. Right, awesome. So a little bit earlier, you mentioned investment. Um, and I wanna go back to that word in particular because sure. um, 
I kind of want to talk about, obviously, um, I assume that in certain people's uh, deals, they have a budget for marketing, a large scale budget for marketing. Um, but I do think it's much harder, as we've discussed earlier, to kind of track the investment on back on that marketing in particular. So how do you, after you've decided to invest in resources and marketing a, a song or, or a product, how do you track how that investment was actually used after it's been deployed and if it was used efficiently or not? You mean, how do we account for where the money goes basically? Yeah, and then the how return. do you, at, at what, at the return, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, the return on investment, got it, got yeah. it. Um, yeah, that, that's, uh, I think that goes back into the, like the, the muddy waters and not being able to control the, um, conversion, not being able to, we don't control the conversion, so we don't see it. Um, right. and, uh, man, we've had so many conversations internally, externally about, you know, uh, databases that we could build out where you could plug in right. automated information where your ad campaigns could automatically just flow in. Um, maybe, maybe I've just been doing this, um, you know, so long that, uh, that I'm stuck in my ways, but I do think that that is a little bit of a fool's errand. You know, I, I don't think right. that numbers alone tell our story. Um, right. They're extremely valuable and I can't downplay how important data has become for our, our industry. But at the same time, um, you know, two sets of numbers across two different campaigns don't always mean the same thing. Um, and you have to keep the context of the artist and the audience and the fan base uh, and the directionality of what that artist's career is doing, um, you know, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm trying to think of like the best way to, to, to describe it, but essentially like, you know, you have a lot of people within the company who are constantly iterating, who are anecdotally exposed to all of our campaigns and who are trusting um, my department, our, our data sciences department and our sales team to be able to contextualize what is and isn't working. And then those right. are the methods that we're going to carry into the next campaign for those key artists. So um, I'll, I'll give you a great example. So, or at least what I think is a great example. So uh, five, six, seven years ago, probably we started talking about um, TV performances. What is, what is the value of, I guess at that time it would have been Conan or Lennon or whomever, um, you know, what's the, the value of a late night TV? And granted, you know, what's the quality of the late night TV performance is a big part of that. But at the end of the day, you know, in a best case scenario, after we've done a TV, um, how, much, how much did sales, how much did downloads go up, et cetera, over the next seven days? Um, mm -hmm. And what we started to realize was that there was a lot of investment going into this space and there's a lot of general awareness within the, 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 the music landscape in terms of like getting in front of people, but it didn't necessarily create new fans. It didn't necessarily break new artists unless it was one of the exceptions to the rule. And so the question became is like, is this the right place to put our investment or should we minimize what we're spending here in order to maximize what we're spending somewhere else where we are seeing a little bit more of success? And mm -hmm. again, that's always going to come back down to like the artists. If they are great live performers, we're going to put them on TV. We're going to make sure that they're right. they can be seen as that. If that's not their core strength, if their core strength is, you know, what they mean to a culture, um, what they mean to the fashion industry, what they mean to a person from um, an emotional perspective in terms of like making them fit in, um, feel like they fit in within, within their world or feeling less alien in their own skin. You know, I think those are things that like, we're going to put the investment in that area. And it's really hard to convey that through a TV performance. Right. Um, ultimately, whatever we try, we're going to try and do our best. Um, but, you know, we have enough. And I think actually this, this gets into the value of a label. We have, you know, a limited number of human beings at RCA Records who are working on an enormous amount of projects. And as a result, that exposure gives us a lot of um, learnings that allow us to carry things into. So looking at mm -hmm. one particular campaign, the best case scenario is we're picking up on the nuances that make that campaign either, either successful or less successful. Whereas um, when you start to get into our general learnings, there isn't, there isn't a company out there that's putting out 
a hundred plus albums a year. You know what I mean? Like outside of labels, obviously. And so even if you're the best manager in the world, you may not have as much exposure as we do to the data um, and to the multiple iterations that we've had across artists, across uh, audiences, across genres, et cetera. Right. Yeah. I love that. Um, So in that vein, and I think, I mean, you're mentioning testing and iterating upon a lot of different tactics, um, contextualizing that across the experience and returns that you're seeing across a range of different artists, trying to deploy tactics that are relevant to those specific artists, because obviously there's no one size fits all. Um, In that vein, one thing that's fascinating to me as a marketer is this notion of... um, I guess you can call it like underpriced attention. And I think at a higher level, you essentially are always, will always have and always will continue to have evolve uh, evolution in consumer behavior. And to the extent that you can be a bit of an early mover on a marketing tactic before it's oversaturated by other marketers trying to uh, deploy that same tactic, that's where you can really tap into that underpriced attention sweet spot. So I'm curious from your experience, um, in the past five to 10 years, what have been some tactics that you've seen have, like have their run, but then fall and kind of like shift out of favor and then use that as kind of a stepping stone into what you're seeing work well right now. Cause I know like TikTok influencer campaigns are super hot, like Facebook, Instagram, native ads can be pricey, but you can get really targeted. So really interested to hear kind of your perspective on, on that. Yeah. First off, that's a great point. And I'm, I've, I haven't heard the, the term underpriced attention before, uh, and I'm totally going to steal that. So thank you <laughs> for that one. Because um, it's a great way to define exactly what it is. Um, past five years, uh, places that, I mean, fair warning, you can barely remember what I did yesterday. Um, but when I try and expand that far and, and think back, you know, the, the things that jump out to me um, are, I mean, the, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to stay away from the influencer campaigns because I know we'll get to that towards the end of this, this specific question. Um, the Spotify campaigns are one, the D2C business is, is, is one where, you know, the right uh, investment, the right strategy behind that, I felt like was a competitive advantage for a minute. And then the, the space matured really, really quickly. Um, and everybody started doing the same thing. Um, we were one of the first, if not the first labels to start, um, uh, experimenting with ticket bundles. Um, but we did it differently because we were struggling to find ways to collaborate with the ticketing agencies and granted, because, you know, I don't think anybody who's selling tickets is going to want to add money um, to the cost of the ticket that isn't going towards the, the ticket itself. Um, and so there was pushback at the time, but I remember it was for, uh, for an upcoming pink tour. And rather than attach the album to the, to the ticket itself, what we did was we attached the pre-sale code to the album pre-order. And so if you went to a store early on and you, and you pre-ordered the album, um, you got a code that gave you access to buy tickets before literally everybody else, including the, the Amex pre-sales, the city pre-sales, Etc. Um, and we found that that was actually a really, really good experience for fans because, in a lot of ways, you know, it's hard for great fans to get great seats, you know. And um, if you're a fan that's willing to engage and invest on the D2C side of things for an artist, I do think that there should be additional rewards for you. Um, and not only that, but those are the people you want front row at your concerts, right? You want the people who are screaming fanatically, singing along with you, and and more than anything, you want them to have your new music. And if they don't have your new music in the first place, you know, like how are you going to get them to sing along with your new records? Um, that's one example. Um, you know, it's funny, like I can actually think back to when pseudo videos were a thing. I don't know if that's a term that, that gets used on here, but like, it's basically the, 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 the audio asset on YouTube. Um, that was a space that we leaned into really, really quickly. must've been eight years ago at this point. And I remember like, we didn't even know what to call them at the time. We just like, we're like, Mm -hmm. this is something that, that people are engaging with. 
we should do more of it. And so we were able to get a lot of that underpriced attention on a lot of our records at the time that we then had to evolve from a, okay, we have a lot of attention on these, but they're not driving revenue because we don't have the right deal in place with YouTube. But that needed to come, you know, that came down the road as we continued to um, engage and collaborate with them. Man, that's a tough question. Um, so we asked you know, you on, the, on the Music Business <laughs> Podcast, tough <laughs> <that> question. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> out and just jump right into the into what we've been doing recently because that's definitely yeah, top of mind for sure for uh-huh. sure yeah and i think the uh you know the, the the influencer campaign i definitely think is a, is a great place to, to to think about you know where we've leaned in and where we've experimented in a lot of different ways um you know a big part of it was basically um to be honest a little bit of stumbling into the success you know we had seen what was happening on platform. We were keeping a close eye on it with artists like Lil Nas X, who obviously was not just a TikTok story. It was a very much a social media story. Um, but as we continue to see the, the platform get, get growth, I, I can't tell you how pessimistic I was day one. I was like, man, we've seen this stuff before. Um, and like, it's working because the songs are hit, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then we started to sniff a little bit of attention on records like, um, you know, Doja Cat Say So, Brockhampton Sugar. And you started to like, actually, honestly, before that, because um, those were campaigns that we had activated. Before that, you started seeing the effect on records, like even like Licky Lee had a record that was starting to grow because somebody had taken the song, slowed it down, and was making creations on TikTok. And it took us, mm-hmm. honestly, like a week or two to be able to figure out where that was even coming from because it wasn't associated with the artist. It didn't have the artist's name and the sound or anything along those lines. But as a result, we could see like, okay, well, this is an audience that's clearly engaging with music in a different way than any other platform. And, and the beauty of, of TikTok for us has been content aggregation behind the sounds, right? Like that's what their right. bread and butter is versus content aggregation behind um, a creator, um, you know, somebody you follow um, or, or an image or a hashtag, right? Like they are only showing you audio first. And then if you want to dig deeper, you go and see whatever other people have done with that exact same audio. And so that started to emerge as a learning. We started to lean in very aggressively. And I think that's how we took those learnings to lean in early with artists like Doja Cat and with Brockhampton to create, to take some shots. And those shots have, have been varied in terms of like execution, et cetera. Um, for us, what we learned early on was like, okay, cool. Um, you know, we know that there are big influencers on the platform that can spark things, but just paying big influencer to do something is not going to work. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't expect it to work. Um, what you should expect to work is if you can get a bunch of, you know, mid-tier um, influencers, people who have 50,000 to a million um, kind of followers, um, to, to help you create a trend uh, via volume and honestly their expertise, you know, like I'm not going to go to a, to a 16 year old influencer on, on TikTok and expect to tell them what to do on the platform, right? They are the expert. That's why we're paying them. It's not just reach right. because they're on the platform 24 seven. And honestly, a lot of the, the best agencies that we work with who work with these kids on a regular basis have literally high schoolers sitting in their office, just screwing around on the app, telling them what's cool, telling them what's, what, what trends are starting to emerge. And I think, you know, that's a really, that was a really good place for us to lean into early on. These days, the, the, the market has become totally saturated. There's no question. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think what's promising is the fact that other um, tech companies have registered what is working. Um, and they're starting to double down on it. And it is that algorithmic presentation of audio first content, sound on platforms. And even when stories uh, launched, um, you know, taking the, the success from what Snapchat had done and, and adopting it into the uh, politely, polite, the polite way to say it is adopting it into the, the Instagram ecosystem. Um, you know, people still didn't have their audio on. You know, like you turn your audio on if you realize that it was kind of like worth putting your audio on. But they even had stickers on platform that said audio on, right? Because you had to tell people that there was something worth listening to there. So um, just having that platform alone 
and then for this to hopefully be the next story. It's like that's that's my mindset. It's like if this if if algorithmic audio first content, vertical content, short form video becomes the new stories. Um, I think our industry has a lot of success in front of us in terms of being able to create these trends, collaborate with the trends, uh, the trendsetters, um, and acknowledge kind of the trends that kids are making on their own, so that we can you know thank them for their their participation and hopefully get the artists involved and get them a lot of what they're looking for, which is um, some sort of um, attention or endorsement from the, the artists they love. Right, right. Awesome. Awesome. So I want to get into some like really big campaigns uh, that you've done in the past. Primarily, uh, this is America. Um, sure. I think that I think that record in particular, um, I think I would assume that when you approach the marketing for it, you had to be very specific and, and very particular how you released it to the world. And I'm sure the first time you heard it, you probably did exactly what the rest of the world did, which was say, holy shit. <laughs> so and start maybe dancing a little bit and then reflecting on the country. <laughs> but um, how did, how did you, how did you approach? And this kind of begs to the larger question too, is, you know, what are some things that you, that you, what are what's some information you need right off the bat when you're starting a, a, a digital marketing campaign and, and how did, how did those questions and how did those inquiries help shape uh, the marketing campaign for, for This Is America? For sure. Um, just writing this down so I don't forget any of the questions. So All This good. Is America is one of my favorite projects to talk about. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite projects. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's the perfect intersection of like, just like, uh, like, I don't know, of, of it, it's art. It's art with a capital A is how I would define it, you know, um, because it means something and it's, it's not just, it's not a commercial product by itself. Um, and the funny thing was when I first heard that record, man, it was right when we were talking to, to, to Donald's team about, you know, bringing him in and, and, and seeing if he wanted to collaborate with RCA records as a label, you know, and I think even the fact that they wanted to take a conversation with RCA records is a big sort of pride for, for myself and for our company. Um, Donald could have gone anywhere. Any label would have been more than happy to have him. Um, and what we were able to display is that, you know, we are an artist first uh, label and that um, we're going to follow an artist's lead and vision, especially, you know, if it's somebody we believe in to the extent of, of what Donald's been able to do, not just as a musician, as a comedian, as a writer, as an actor, right. it's just, everything is there. Um, and at the time they were very interested in how we had collaborated with someone like Justin Timberlake, um, who has had a lot of success in a lot of different areas, et cetera. Um, but either way, long story short, as part of that conversation, they played us this, like this little thing he was working on and it had the rhythm from this is America. And it had a little bit of, um, of the song structure there. But honestly, to my untrained years and my marketing first day in our second year is like, I was like, okay, cool. This, there's something here, but like, I can't wait <laughs> to hear the song. You know what I mean? Like it was like, I couldn't, I right. couldn't fathom it inside my head to the extent that I knew what it was going to be. And right. to be honest, like, I think one of the biggest things that, that you have to acknowledge with this song is that like, it was video first. Like that video did so mm -hmm. much to be able to contextualize what was in that song. Cause at the end of the day, man, there are people who've listened to a song 350 times in the span of, of a month that couldn't tell you one word that's in that song. You know what I mean? Like yeah. paying attention to lyrics is not something that most people do. And so I don't think that people would have, have gone to the lengths that they did to be able to understand a record like This Is America, nor would they have had the willingness to um, engage with a sound that was a little bit different than they maybe heard on the radio or been hearing on their playlists as regularly. I mean, like This Is America was a record that got pop play. You know what I mean? Like the right. cultural conversation around it was so big and so relevant um, that everybody had to get involved at some point. Um, but I think like when you look at it um, within the, the context of like what broke, what, what we needed to do, um, you know, the first thing that we look at is the audience, who, who, is, mm -hmm. who is 
currently listening? How much are they listening? Why are they listening? What's the next audience that we don't have that we know we need to go get? And then what are the strategies that we're going to take to go get them? Um, but with someone like Donald, who had a fairly firm fan base at that point, it was much more about how do we present this content in a way that, um, that connects with people as quickly as possible. And, and, and he and his management team had correctly identified that this visual was going to be the difference maker. And so if I recall correctly, um, you know, day one, video was the only thing we were pointing to on that song. And I think video even launched um, on platforms like Apple Music and Spotify around the same time, mm-hmm. um, which is not something that we do uh, for Spotify on a regular basis. Like Spotify, we don't have a video distribution deal with them. Um, but we knew that the con- we knew that this visual that the, that our job would honestly be done if we could get people to watch this. Um, right. And um, and look at the end of the day, um, you can't discount what the artist delivered. The artist delivered what was probably I don't know top, in my opinion, top three video all time kind of thing. You know, like mm-hmm. for a video to have that much meaning within a culture, um, within a country, um, man, not a lot of people can do that. Um, right. And the ones that can are just so special. So. Uh, you know, that's, that's, I talked about luck at, at, at the early part of it. And, you know, like the hard work um, came in and in, in collaborating with Donald and, and getting him to understand that this is a space that's going to trust his artistry and follow him wherever he wants to go at the same time as not being shy about speaking up and, and lending our expertise um, in terms of what we've seen that, that maybe he hasn't been able to see um, right. through just the, the number of, you know, uh, experimentations like we talked about early on. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just, you know, the luck comes in and, and you get something delivered to you that, you know, is just like so special that the most important thing you can do is not fuck it up. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's what that record was. You know, we, we got out of the way. Our promo team did an amazing job. Our video team did an amazing job, kind of like just making sure everything was set up to, to be a success. The marketing team pushed everywhere that we could. The artists leaned in in a way that that hadn't happened in quite a while. Um, right. And so like, it was just like a perfect storm. But, you know, if you give me five videos that are this America quality, we will give you five campaigns that are this America quality, you know? Right. And, and, and to say that that's the only differentiator is not true. But, like, it just was one of those cultural moments that, you know, this is America hit that, that upper echelon of, of meaning something to so many people that, you know, the, the, the only thing we could do if we were trying was to slow it down. And, and why would we want to do that? Yeah, yeah, and what I'm what I'm hearing is you you know you were inspired by the art and that probably motivated you to do a better campaign. You know, yeah, you know yeah. it's it's it, it's like yeah, obviously this is really good and a lot of people will connect to it. But the first people that connected to it were was you guys. You guys connected to it, and then you guys were like, man, we we that's I think that's what I hear when you say don't fuck it up because you could have fucked it up. Oh. You know, <laughs> it was it was just more so the inspiration that came from the content and the art itself, which is kind of when I think everything comes together perfectly is when everyone's on the same page about how inspiring this thing is that you're promoting. Mm-hmm. Getting on the same page is one of the most important things we do as, as, as a label, as an industry, et cetera. Um, because you have a lot of people working on the same piece of content on a, like in their different fields. And if they're all pointing in different directions, you're pulling the project apart at its scene. But if you're all standing right. behind it and pushing it, you know, there, there can be some real momentum behind that, that collaboration and that communication. Um, but yeah, I do think that that's very much the case is that like, you know, it, it, it was something that, that connected with us early on in a lot of, in a lot of ways, um, we are salespeople, you know, like I, I hate to think of myself like that, but if I go into a conversation, you know, with, with our peers at, at one of the, the companies that we collaborate with on a regular basis, and I'm ever able to deliver an impassioned, you know, speech as to why this matters and why we're so excited about mm-hmm. it. Um, that most likely is going to have a positive effect. And, you know, we say it within our company on a regular basis, like, 
if my Instagram handle is completely private, it will always be private. That's how I, <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, we are still our influencers within our own circles. And, you know, when, when Columbia has something going on, when Epic has something going on, when Universal labels, et cetera, you know, we're peers enough with each other that you start to get exposed to what the other labels are doing just through your natural kind of social um, kind of history, et cetera. But at the end of the day, like we're influencers, you know, like we do uh, influence the market in one way or another. Um, and if we can uh, create um, a reaction through our own channels at the same time as, you know, collaborating with our, our peers at the DSPs and then also affecting what the, the, the fans are doing, um, you have to have passion to be able to do that. It, it's really hard to fake that for an extended period of time. Um, and maybe the good, great ones can. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's no question that. Um, working on a campaign that you feel like is important is, is a great motivator. It can also be right. really frustrating though, right? Like if you believe in a record, if you believe in an artist and you want it to work and it doesn't, that can also be one of the most frustrating things on the planet. Because at the end, of the, and that's, that's honestly one of my, one of the funniest things uh, I see on, on, on our comments on a regular basis is, you know, like, you don't support this artist. You don't want them to win. You know, like they, they, like this is, the RCA doesn't care. And the truth of the matter is like, <laughs> that is insane. The only thing we yeah. want is success. Like if there's a way for us to get success and, and, and it's standing in front of us, we're going to go and grab it, you know? Um, and I think a lot of times it's hard to separate your fandom from kind of like how the rest of the world kind of use your favorite artist. And so um, it is funny to see that kind of like that feedback from an audience, whereas knowing that like, you know, you may be getting panned. Um, for the work you're doing on a campaign, but you could be spending 20 hours a week just banging your head against the wall trying to find ways um, to break through with that record, with that artist, et cetera. We don't sign artists right. in love. You know, like that's, that would be a very silly thing to do. We don't, we don't collaborate with, um, with, with, uh, on business opportunities that we don't think have a, a chance of being successful. Um, our industry is filled with failure. You know, like we, we have to acknowledge that. And it's filled with, um, with, uh, with big, big acts. And at the end of the day, mm -hmm you know, your, your label is probably as successful as your biggest act is. Um, but the future of your label is defined by your ability to create those big acts. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. well, that's an incredible note to end on, man. I think we've been <laughs> able to cover a lot of grounds. I think it's uh, really loved a lot of the different principles and tactics you spoke to. And I mean, even just kind of going full circle to the beginning, just to the, the ability to kind of uh, climb the mountain, uh, adapt when there's a boulder in the way and just continue to take that approach throughout your entire career. So cheers, man. Thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Let's talk soon. Cheers. Right, cheers. Man, Tarek, MVP. Oof. Right. That episode right. That was hit. What'd you think, right. man? I thought it was awesome. And I just want to let people know that when we were, we do text during interviews uh, to decide who's going to speak next because we're always very excited to speak to guests. And Sam did text me, I am enjoying this interview in the middle of the interview. So just, just to give you an idea of uh, what we thought about it. But hey, man, I thought it was really awesome. I think somebody who's worked it at that level for, for a decade in, in this specific, in a very particular field. I think you're going to get a lot of knowledge, not just for what works now, but what's worked over time and how to actually learn from that history and use it to, to help with, with future campaigns. So um, I'm very glad that we were able to get him on. I think that he laid out all of his points in a very succinct and concise way for people to pick it up and, and take notes because I know some of you guys take notes. So um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really glad that we were able to interview him. What do you think, Sam? Yeah, I thought it was incredible, man. I think both from some of the intrinsic skills around adaptability, 
um, being comfortable with failure to some of the more tactical sides of digital marketing when it comes to the different sorts of campaigns he's running, how he's tracking performance, uh, how he's focused on building foundational fandom and emotional connection with fans and the art of artists. I really found this to be an incredible uh, episode. And I, I think for you guys that are listening, I mean, yeah, like Jordan said, hopefully you took some good notes, but I think really use this as an opportunity to ask yourself, like what are some of the specific tactics that you learned today or things that he spoke about that you want to deploy in developing yourself as an artist, artists you may work with. I think there are tons of gems and I think this can definitely set you all up to succeed. So don't just don't just listen to it and forget it. It's about that action. So so let's see what you <laughs> let's see what comes next. And uh, as always, we appreciate the action of you guys tuned into the podcast. So uh, until next week, super grateful for y'all. Peace. Thank you guys.